through 20. Listen now to the word of the Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you, know, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come back to know God, or rather to be, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is, go, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for who I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. The word of the Lord. Uh, Welcome. Uh, Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made and for allowing us to gather together in your house. We ask now once again that your spirit would speak to our spirits and by the presence of your spirit in us we might cry out together, Abba, Father. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is uh, now the sixth sermon in a series of sermons on uh, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. Uh, Paul has been arguing that there is only one true gospel, the one he received by revelation, the one the Galatians experienced by the Spirit, the one agreed to by all the apostles, the one preached even to Abraham, the one given in faith. He has been repeating, and I also have been repeating, and frankly, I will continue to repeat throughout this series, that there is nothing to be added to the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. That any addition, no matter how well-intentioned, only reduces and therefore 
destroys the gospel of Jesus Christ. So last week, you heard about how God's promises were first made to Abraham and to his one singular anticipated future offspring, that is Jesus Christ, long before God gave the temporary laws to Moses. And because that covenant was first made with Abraham, a covenant of faith and by grace, it has precedence over any additional temporary law that was added later. As a result, in Christ, we are all the children of Abraham and heirs of the promises of God, regardless of any of our other identity markers. That being in Christ is the most important thing about who we are. In today's reading, uh, Paul now finishes out his argument about being an heir to the promises of God by using this illustration of a minor, an heir, who has nothing until he comes of age. A minor, no matter how powerful or how wealthy his parents may be, has no access to his inheritance and is under authority until he comes of age, until the time that is set by his father. Every culture, I suppose, has their own set of rituals to recognize when a child has come of age. For the Jews, it was typically 13 when they went through a bar mitzvah. For some of the ancient Greeks, it was a ritual of apateria when boys would have their hair cut and offered to the gods and their names registered. For some of the ancient Romans, it was a ritual of liberalia when boys would receive an adult Toga, and they would burn their toys as a mark, as a sign of their entry into formal adulthood. In this country, um, maybe something like turning 18 when you get to vote, or you get your driver's license, or maybe 21 when you get to, uh, to drink. Um, but once you cross that threshold into adulthood, you can't go back. That's Paul's point. Once you've, you know, once you've moved on to college... You can't go back to high school. Once you're in high school, you can't go back to middle school. I mean, once through middle school is enough. You you don't want to go back. Paul says that's the situation you're in. You were like a child, under law, under authority, like a slave, he says, but you've come of age. You're free now. You're free now. The fullness of time, that the perfect timing of God has come. And it's time to receive the promises of God in Christ as an heir. How can you think about going back to the law? He says, while you were minors, in fact, you were enslaved to the law and to the elementary powers of the world. I know that most people today, um, then too probably, take exception to this idea of being enslaved uh, to the law or to the elementary principles of the world, where this is cosmic, demonic powers, or it's a reference to natural law, or perhaps even to the traditions of religion and rituals of society. Very few people like to think of themselves as having been enslaved or being enslaved. We want to think of ourselves essentially as you know, pretty good people, that we have freedom and agency and that the ideal of being enslaved, this language, is just too much. It, it's, it just seems wrong and doesn't fit into our modern reality. 
You might think that there are those who are enslaved because of a, a drug addiction, for example, that there are those who can't control themselves uh, when it comes to shopping or cleaning or what have you. You might think of those people who are living under repressive regimes or under oppressive poverty, and so they have very little choice about their lives, and so that is a kind of enslavement. And of course, we, we know that there are places in the world today still where people are literally in slavery. And so you might think those people, those people are under enslavement. They understand what it is to be a slave, but not me, not us. We're free. We were born free. We live in a free country. You might even think to yourself, yeah, well, yeah, maybe I have a few small problems, but I'm a reasonably healthy and happy person. I'm not enslaved. That doesn't apply to me. You know, when I hear that, um, and I do hear that because, you know, when we present the gospel and we talk about being enslaved to sin, you know, people just react to that in a very powerful and negative way. But when I hear that, I'm reminded of what the Jewish leader said to Jesus when Jesus told them in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. You will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And do you remember what they responded? They answered him, we are offsprings of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say to us, you will become free? Right? They appeal to Abraham. We are the children of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. Now, Jesus didn't pursue this any further. But he could have said, seriously? You've never been enslaved to anyone? That's where you're going to go with here? You're going to completely ignore the fact that you were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. You're just going to completely forget that. You were never enslaved. You're going to forget that you were under the oppression, enslaved or exiled under the Moabites, the Midianites, the Canaanites, the Philistines. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes, the Greeks. And now, even now, you are under the oppression of the Romans. We're going to just throw all that out. You have never been enslaved by anyone. But Jesus doesn't do that. You know, this, this is not just a lapse in historical recollection. This is theological amnesia and points to a broken spirituality. When God brought the people out of, out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery, God repeatedly told the people to be kind to the stranger, to be generous to the migrant, to be just to the foreigner. Why? Because you were slaves in Egypt. That memory was supposed to shape their attitude, and their behavior toward others. Remember what it was like for you to have been a slave. And remember how you were delivered from that experience. God told them in the Ten Commandments, remember? He said, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. 
In Exodus, he tells us to remember the Sabbath because of creation. Because God created and rested on the seventh day. But in the repetition of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, God gives a different reason. He says, remember the Sabbath because you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord God and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They were supposed to keep the Sabbath because they were supposed to remember what it was like to have been a slave and, and not have a day off to rest, to remember the Lord. All humanity, Paul says, and this is what he's going here. It's, we're, we're all enslaved. We all have this experience. All humanity, apart from Christ, without exception, all are bound together in servitude to sin and to the powers, the principalities, the elemental principles of the world. We are all equally enslaved, Paul says, Jews and Gentiles. But then he says that the good news, the good news is that we are all then equally freed in Jesus Christ. And and until you recognize and acknowledge that you are enslaved or have been enslaved, the good news cannot become good news for you. You have to know that you were once a slave or are still under enslavement. This is a hard truth. And that's why, you know, I... We have to be reminded of it constantly. I don't know if you saw this, but the other day I heard about a new short movie uh, that's coming out or has come out uh, titled Jesus is King. And um, not being very cool, um, I thought it was going to be you know, a movie about Jesus. <laughs> um, I was disappointed, uh, admittedly, uh, to learn that it's a production by Kanye West. Uh, I know he's quite popular, uh, but I've never really listened to his music. Um, I don't know if you have, but um, is this, I don't know if this is, is he, okay, you, you've listened to it. So it's just, so it's just me, I'm, I'm the only one, okay. Uh, so I don't really know anything about his music. Um, I do know that he's married to Kim Kardashian, um, and that he supports Donald Trump, and that every once in a while he makes the news for doing something really crazy or weird, so I know that much. Uh, but I was intrigued. Uh, by an interview he recently gave on the uh, Jimmy Kimmel show to promote uh, this record and movie, Jesus is King. Uh, And in in the interview, he made this statement. He said, now that I'm in service to Christ, my job is to spread the gospel to let people know what Jesus has done for me. I thought, wow, that's great, right? I mean, Kanye West is going to, you know, he's going to convert the world. That's, that's solid. My job is to spread the gospel and to let people know what Jesus has done for me. But then, as the interview continued, <laughs> predictably, he made a few additional remarks that made me go, hmm. For example, he said, we're in complete service to God and the business is thriving. The business is thriving. And then he also said, I feel like there's so few individuals in a position like mine to be able to give their opinion and stand up and say that this is what family is about. And I feel like God is using me and using the choir, using my family to show off. Now, I hope he meant to say to be an example and not to show off. 
I mean, it's an interview, and maybe he will regret his particular choice of words later. I, I don't want to be overly critical or cynical about, you know, about him. Um, because he did say some things that, was, that I found quite impressive. For example, he said this. I've spread a lot of things. There was a time I was letting, you know, what high fashion had done for me. I was letting, you know, what the Hennessy had done for me. But now I'm letting you know what Jesus has done for me. And in that, I'm no longer a slave. I'm a son now, a son of God. I'm free. I mean, that's, that's even better, right? I mean, I hope he can cling to that. I really do. I'm no longer a slave. I'm a son now, a son of God. I mean, that is solid theology. That's the gospel. That's what Paul is preaching right here. The good news is it's even better than you had imagined. At the end of chapter 3, he said, you know, you're Abraham's seed. You're a descendant of Abraham. You're his offspring and heirs of the promises of God. But now Paul moves on and he says, it's more than that. You're not just a son of Abraham. You are an adopted child of God. He's saying that, you know, the things that you were pursuing through the law, hoping to get, all that is now yours because you are the heirs. You are the children of God. What they wanted to be through the law, Paul says, you already are. Who they wanted to become through the law, Paul says, you already are. Why then would you go back to keeping the law? Why then would you go back to the weak and worthless elemental things to go back to a state of slavery? All this, you know, this keeping of the law, keeping to the traditions of diet, of circumcision, may look like acts of higher discipleship, but Paul says they're actually a step backwards toward infancy. Now that you have come to know God, and then he corrects himself to be more theologically correct, he says, now that you have come to be known by God, why would you go back? Why would you go back to these lesser things? I think in some ways, you know, the Galatians, like many well-meaning Christians today, they're not exactly rejecting the gospel, but it's almost like they're trying to improve the gospel. It's like when you buy a car. You know, when you buy a car, there is kind of the, the standard model of the car, but then you can buy all these Upgrades, right? Heated leather seats, for example. I bought my very first car in 1990. And I didn't realize, you know, uh, when I bought the car, that air conditioning was an option. (laughs) I thought every car came with air conditioning. So I bought the car, I signed the papers, went home, turned on the air conditioning, and the air conditioner didn't work. So I took the car back to the dealer and said, hey, you know, the air conditioner is not working. And the dealership informed me that, no, no, you you didn't pay for the option of having air conditioning in your car. So if you want it, it's going to cost you more money. And so, of course, I I ended up paying more and being very bitter about it. Um, 
Thank God the gospel is not like that, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not the cheapest model. And if you really want to be a favored child of God, then you got to pay extra for all these extra bells and whistles and get circumcised and keep dietary laws. It doesn't work that way. There is no newer and better model, an improved model of the gospel coming out next year. There is no upgrade. There is no version two coming out next year. There is no premium membership that you have to buy into. There is only one gospel. That's what Paul's been arguing for three and a half chapters. There is only one gospel. There is nothing you can add to it. Any addition destroys the gospel. And now in verse 12, he gives his first command. His first use of the imperative in the letter appears only now in verse 12. He writes, brothers and sisters, become as I am. Become as I am. In light of everything I've written to you about the gospel and its implications, he says, become as I am. That is, become as one who has modeled his life apart from the law. As one who lives freely as an heir and as an adopted child of God. Become like me. You know, that's a hard word, isn't it? How many of us are comfortable in saying to those people around us, become like me? Especially when it comes to matters of faith. Become like me. Imitate me. This past summer in Kenya, uh, I had a conversation with Missionary Lee, and we happened to talk about this verse. And he shared with me how this verse was so difficult for him because he, he just couldn't say to the Kenyans, become like me. He, he said it just seems so arrogant and so hypocritical when he, when he thought about his own life and all that was unworthy and, and he just felt like he just couldn't be a kind of example uh, to the people he was ministering to. But then he said that after a while he realized that maybe for the people of Kenya, that the people that he was ministering to, maybe it's okay. Because he said, you know, when you tell them to be like Christ, it, like, it's impossible. It's impossible. Like, it, Christ is so good, so beyond any sort of realistic expectation. Right? The, the bar is so high. It can be discouraging. And so he thought, well, maybe they can at least come to here, or at least to start here, by imitating me in my imperfections. Maybe it's an encouragement to know that, yeah, you're not going to be perfect like Christ. But here are some people who are trying to follow Christ. And you can imitate them. When you're starting out, especially when you're starting out in something new, it's okay to imitate someone who's only a little bit better than you. You don't have to go to the very best to learn in the beginning. Some of you here, you know, you're, you're very mature in your faith. And you don't need to become like me. I need to become like you. But some of you are younger in your faith. There are a lot of people here you can look to and become like. They aren't perfect, 
but they can get you started. And I think Paul is calling the Galatians to that, to imitate him, not not in everything, he knows he's not perfect, but to imitate him, to become like him in this freedom that he has in Christ, in a life that he is modeling apart from the law. Right? He, of all people, could have kept the law. But, but he's rejected all of that. And he's living as they are. And so he invites them to continue to live like him. To become like him. And I love what he does here. He's, he, he tells them to become like me, not through a tightly reasoned argument from the scriptures as he had been doing, but by reminding them now of their shared emotional history of mutual affection. He reminds them of how an illness caused him to change his travel plans and he ended up sharing the gospel with them. And and we don't know exactly what happened and we don't know what kind of illness that he had that forced him to uh, go to the Galatians. But we know that Paul was regularly beaten and flogged and stoned and suffered all manners of physical uh, suffering. So I'm sure when he showed up, he, he looked pretty messed up. But he says, you know, they did not scorn or despise him despite his appearance. Instead of scorn, the kind of rejection that Jesus received, instead of despising or showing contempt for Paul, as he probably expected, as he received from other churches, the Galatians treated Paul lovingly, he says, as if he were an angel or even Christ himself. He reminds them that their care for him was so great that they would have gouged out their eyes for him if that would have helped. I don't think he means this literally, but it, it, you know, proverbially, right? They would have done anything for him. They, they would have given the shirt off their backs for Paul because that's how much they care for him. That, that's how he felt. That's the, the love that he received from them. You know, I want to tell you that um, I, I thought of you all uh, when I read these verses last year. Um, I mentioned, you know, during uh, when I was recovering from my surgery, I was reading through the New Testament, and it was this passage that just just really stuck with me, um, because I thought of all the extraordinary love and care that you gave me and uh, to my family that we received um, when I was in this, this situation. And as I read Paul's words here, I'm reminded again that, you know, the most important moments in our lives, in fact, I think the the most important decisions we make in our lives, my life for sure, and probably yours too, those decisions are not made calmly and rationally because it was the most reasonable decision to make. My decision to follow Jesus Christ was not because of my study of Paul and then of Calvin and of Luther and others, and their arguments persuaded me that Jesus is the truth and I'm going to follow Christ? No. I started to follow Christ because of an outpouring of love by the Holy Spirit. And then, and then, I understood the arguments and studied the arguments so that it made sense. How many of you made a decision to marry your spouse based strictly or primarily on reason after a cost-benefit analysis of what that would do for you? It was something else. 
That something else might not have been a good thing, but it was something else. It was only afterwards that you realized all the unforeseen costs as well as benefits. But the decision itself was not first made strictly or primarily by reason. Paul too. As good as he is in laying out the arguments for following Jesus, as good as he is, as good as he is in giving us the the theological rationale, going through the scriptures, arguing from the word of God, he was not convinced of the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel by argument. He received it by revelation. He had an encounter with the living Christ. That was what convinced him. And then he worked out the logic afterwards. That's what I think Paul is doing here in this section. He's already laid out all the arguments, but he knows that that's not going to be persuasive, ultimately. He calls them to become like him, not in some logical or even a threatening sort of way, but reminding them of the deep mutual affection that they share for one another. Just as the memory of being enslaved and being freed shapes their understanding of who and whose they are, so too does this shared memory of this particular community, of a particular moment in time, when they went through together this caring, this suffering, he begs them to remember their spiritual birth and the upbringing for which he considers himself a mother. He says he's birthing a new community in Christ in them, and he uses this metaphor of being in labor until Christ is formed in them. A metaphor that suggests not only a new birth, but but the pain and the suffering that labor requires. He, He writes not as a distant philosopher with a cold and calculated argument, but as an aggrieved mother might write to her beloved child who has wandered from the faith. That's his heart. That's his heart. That's how I want to be. That's how I want us to be. Can we become a people who respond to the gospel with a willingness to gouge out our eyes for one another? Can you imagine growing into a community that would make such a sacrifice for one another? How is that possible? Not by reason primarily, but by being in Christ, by being in Christ first, and then by sharing a life together of caring for one another. This is what it is to be in Christ. This is what it means to be sons and daughters and adopted heirs of God. You don't have to gouge out your eyes for one another, but look around you and see who needs help and see what you might do. Look around and see whose generosity and sacrifice, whose life of joy and freedom in Christ that you can imitate to become like them. And then have the humble confidence in Christ as you live by faith, as you live apart from the bondage of the law, to say to those who are struggling with faith, become as I am. Freed from sin and the bondage of the law. And trust 
in the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word once again and the reminder, and the reminder that in you, that in you and only in you, we are freed from the bondage of sin. We are freed from the requirements of the law. We are freed from the elemental principles of this world. That in you, we have a freedom for one another. To care for one another. God, help us to live into this reality, to this truth for which you gave your life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And now I want to invite all of you to the Lord's table. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night of his betrayal and arrest, he took the bread and after giving thanks,